Exceeding Expectations, episode 38. Welcome to this week's edition of Exceeding Expectations, the podcast where we aim to give you ideas of ways that you can give your customers a better experience in some way. Most of the guests that come on here have the aim of trying to over-deliver or just give their customers a different experience from what they were expecting. Rather than just simply meeting expectations, they try to over-deliver in some way. This week's uh, guest is Adrian Shepherd, and it's a second time lucky. We tried to have him on before and there was... Something went wrong. Something went wrong with the recording. It couldn't really quite work out what it was. But we've got him on now, and um, he's he's had an interesting life. He was caught up in a tsunami in Southeast Asia back in 2004. Second guest because we had a Michelle Mills Porter was also caught up in that same tsunami, and it changed his life dramatically. So that's coming up in just a few seconds. If you do like this show, please do leave a review for us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all the various other podcast platforms and maybe join the Facebook group uh, which is called obviously Exceeding Expectations on Facebook start some questions start some conversations and hope you enjoy this week's show with Adrian Shepherd. Welcome to Exceeding Expectations this week we are speaking with Adrian Shepherd. how are you Adrian? I'm good, Tony. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, well, second time lucky. We're, we're going to see if technology is in favour of us this time. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully the gods look down on us and uh, pity us, we say. <laughs> so you're over in Japan, aren't you? Oh, that's correct. And so how long have you been in Japan? Well, it's going on close to, I guess, 25 years total, maybe. Wow, okay. And where, whereabouts in Japan are you? I'm in Osaka. The, it used to be the second largest city, but now it's the third. But, I mean, I don't know, what's a, what's a few uh, million people or something like that. So what? So who overtook Osaka then? Uh, Yokohama, actually. Oh, I see. Okay. I didn't realize that. I thought I thought it was still... Because I've, I've been to Osaka myself. I used to live in Kobe, and I think we had that conversation last time. Yeah. Yep. But, and, yeah, and you have a very Japanese accent, Adrian. I do. Wow, I don't know. I guess it's just all my years of uh, helping people master English and uh, working with uh, foreign students and uh, living in Asia, I guess. I've just picked up these, this weird accent where I'm not really English. I'm not really American. I don't know what I am. I'm just a person. And that's the way I look at it. Well, and that, that's something we did because I remember you mentioning that you, I think you were born in Yorkshire, but then you traveled mm-hmm. around quite a bit. That's correct. Yeah. So do you want to sort of expand on that a bit? What happened? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, back in the uh, early 80s, uh, things were not looking good for my father in the sense that he was in the garment industry and basically all the factories were moving overseas just to uh, be competitive. Um, and so my father was one of the first people let go in his uh, company because he didn't have a college degree. And so we looked around or he looked around for a job and um, he, he basically there was nothing available for him. So he got a job offer in the Philippines and we didn't even know where the Philippines was back then. I mean, nowadays, you know, everybody knows where places like uh, Phuket and, uh, you know, Tahiti are. But back in the day, I mean, people were basically limited to their 
just surroundings. And um, yeah, I mean, nobody knew where the Philippines was. I mean, it, telling people back then that we were going to move to the Philippines was like telling them we're going to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, it was that bizarre. And I didn't realize what a big deal it was as a little kid. You know, I just, I was told we're moving. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, I, I, mm -hmm. okay, sure. You know, I mean, I had no clue what it entailed. Uh, but I knew it was a big deal because um, I was told that uh, I was going to be, there's going to be a ceremony at the school to say goodbye to me. Um, mm. You know, like a farewell I don't know, event or something. I, I didn't really, I can't remember what it was called, but when I got into the gymnasium, I realized what a big deal it was because I was at the center of everything. You know, I was on stage with the teachers and the, the teachers gave a big speech about how I was leaving. And I'm like, where the hell am I going? You know, at the time, <laughs> it was just kind of overwhelming for me a little bit. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, and the Philippines back then is not the way it is today. I mean, it's very modernized and uh, it's easy to get foreign goods now in those places. But when I was there, it was um, it was interesting. Let's put it that way. Um, mm. I mean, the weather was great. I loved the, you know, the beaches and the you know, crystal clear waters. I have such fond memories of the Philippines, but I also remember that sometimes we're tough. You know, we had five days without water, electricity, you know, three days. It's it's tough. Um, and uh, you've got to just make do. Uh, but it was a life-changing experience for all of us. It made me see mm. what the world was like. And um, of course, it changed my, my parents' uh, lives because my father was able to slowly move up uh, the ranks and uh, eventually landed a quite a good job with Mattel and then he moved on to uh, Triumph not the motorcycle Triumph but the uh, bra manufacturing from mm -hmm. out of Germany and mm -hmm. um, that took us to Thailand so I spent four years in Thailand during my high school years and then I went to college in the States which is I guess where most of my accent comes from mm -hmm. and um, I really thought I'd hit the jackpot when I moved to America I thought this is it this is where I want to be for the rest of my life but it just didn't pan out that way. And five or six years later, I found myself here in Japan and I've been here ever since. And so what, why did you originally go to Japan? Well, in college, I just was looking for a part-time job and I, there was an opportunity available for an English teaching assistant where you would help foreign students um, acclimate to American culture. And mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I can do that. And so I at first wasn't picked because I hadn't lived in America. And they said, well, you don't understand American culture. But I'd attended American school since the age of eight. So for me, I only knew American culture. I really didn't know British culture. Mm. Um, and so luck would, as luck would have it, one of the teachers uh, bailed at the last moment. So they called me up and said, are you still interested in the job? And I said, yes. And um, I had just happened to have some Japanese students in my group. And I just loved their passion. And I thought it's kind of unfair in the way the world is today. And this is back in the nineties because English is everywhere and I don't have to study a foreign language, but these people are almost forced to, in order to be able to mm. compete in this environment. And I, mm. I really respected them. And I thought how hard it was to master English. And I thought maybe it's a little bit unfair for me to say, you know, why can't you learn English when I can't speak a foreign language myself? And just to pique my interest, on top of that. So I just thought, hey, you know what? Uh, I, I like America, but it's not exactly what I was looking for. And so I thought, well, let's just go to see what Japan's like and you know, maybe I'll like it. 
And lo and behold, I mean, when I told my father I was going to Japan, my father thought it was the biggest waste of time because I said I'm going to learn Japanese. He thought, you know, like, like that's going to happen because uh, mm-hmm. he knew me. I wasn't exactly the most studious uh, student. Uh, I wasn't stupid, but um, I was clever at finding ways around things. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the biggest shock to him. Uh, he said it's the big sh- it was the biggest shock in his life that I actually was able to learn language. And why do you think that was? What was it that was different about learning Japanese from what you tried before? Uh, motivation. Um, you know, okay. when you when you want to learn something, you learn it. And when you don't want to learn it, you just block things off. Uh, mm. I think that's the biggest problem people have is that they say they can't do something. And once they start saying they can't, then they mm. just find every reason why it's not possible. Whereas yeah. if you say, I'm going to find a way they will. I mean, the great story that I like to tell people, I hope it's okay to share this one with you, is the uh, mm-hmm. story of Henry Ford and the V8 engine. Have you heard that before? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Great story. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, basically he, he, he talked to his engineers and he said, you know, I want a V8 engine. And at the time, V6 was the biggest thing. And they said, okay, well, we don't know if we can do it, but we will try our best. And they went away. Mm-hmm. And six months later, they came back and told him, okay, we've tried everything. It's just not possible. We're just not able to get the power. And he gave him all these reasons. He said, no, no, gentlemen, I want a V8 engine. You make it happen. Go back and in that room and you figure it out. Went mm-hmm. back again six months later. They come back and say, hey, I'm sorry. Look, we tried everything, Mr. Ford. It's just not happening. It's just not physically possible because of A, B, C, D, E, and F. And mm-hmm. finally, he's, he basically looks them in the eyes and said, no, gentlemen, you don't understand. I want it. Make it happen. Six months mm-hmm. later, V8 engine was born. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. And they, they say, I don't know if it's absolutely true, but there's a very similar story with Steve Jobs and the, I think it was the iPhone or one of the models of the iPhone. Oh, I he, he did, yeah. Yeah. Oh. He did something very similar. The engineers kept coming back and saying mm-hmm. they weren't, they weren't able to do whatever it was he mm-hmm. was asking. And he said, no, you can do this. And, and eventually, you know, very much as in that story, they did eventually do it because he demanded that they did it. Right. And I think the same with learning a language, especially I, when people say I can't learn a language, that isn't, that's, completely false because mm-hmm. if you take yourself and put yourself in another culture where you have no access to your original language you will pick up new language so quickly yep. because out of desperation you need water mm-hmm. you need food you want to yeah. ask for help you mm-hmm. figure out these words fast because mm-hmm. you have no other choice so mm-hmm. i i laugh when people say that i can't learn a language i think yeah i was there once <laughs> well, and I think something else happens as well because it, I've been in that situation a few times. I lived in quite a few countries around the world, and I learned. I went to a part of Spain where no one spoke English, so it made me learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. And when I I lived in Indonesia, and I I learned Indonesian. But what I found, and I'm sure this is the same for you, is that as you start to get more and more fluent, the reactions you get from local people are they, they're just so surprised, pleasantly surprised that you've taken the effort to learn their language. It really, um, you get. It really endears you more to them, and you're, I think more opportunities come your way because they look upon you more in a different way than all the you know, most foreigners never bother to learn their language. Absolutely, I mean that is spot on. You know, they understand a lot of countries that they have to learn English because that's the business language. But mm. they, we don't have to learn their languages, really. I suppose. So those people that actually take the time and the effort and the energy to try and learn it and to understand 
their culture, it, mm. it, it says something about you. And yeah, you break down barriers. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. And so, uh, for you, so you started, was it, you, you were teaching English when you first went there, but then, I mean, I know that's not what you're doing now. Well, I think you still do it a little bit, but was it, was it you're mostly doing now? Well, I got into productivity. Right. Um, the thing is, is that I, when I started teaching students, I was trying to figure out what, why some people succeed and why some people didn't. I thought there's got to be something that connects all of these students. And I looked at them over and over and over again. And I finally nailed, I came down to one simple uh, truth. And that is that the people who did it used their line, their time effectively. And the people who didn't, didn't. Hmm. And so I thought, you, you know, everybody's always talking about, they don't have enough time. They want to spend time with their family. They want to travel and they've got so much work. They can't get it all done. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if people had more time on their hands, but then they could do all the things that they want to do. They could learn the languages that they want to learn. They could write the books that they want to write. They could, you know, create these songs that they have inside them that they can spend time seeing their son grow up. I thought that's something really powerful and something that a lot of people need. And I thought mm. teaching is just great. I like it. I really enjoy seeing people change but it's a slow change it takes years of effort and time but mm. time management if i can teach people how to maximize their time and to get become more productive then i could really make a difference in people's lives and so that's really what i got into um and i was really pushed over the edge when uh, December 26, 2004 happened, uh, as I, we talked about last time, uh, you mm -hmm. know, that's the day that my life really changed forever. And that was, I, I found myself fighting for my life in, in, in the form of a tsunami uh, <laughs> barreling down on me and my mm -hmm. life. Um, so, but, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, tell us more about that. Well, all year I'd saved up money to go and enjoy a nice getaway vacation with my wife and I. We'd been married two years at the time, been together about four, and I really wanted to take her scuba diving. I wanted to show her a little bit of what I experienced as a child, beautiful, crystal clear water with all sorts of colors and uh, fish and, and whales maybe even if we got lucky, and just really explore that uncharted area for many people and we I, I found that the best place to do in thailand was in a place called the Simulan islands but the only way to get there was from a small sleepy town called kaolak i hadn't even heard of it until i researched how to get to the Simulans. and mm -hmm. so i showed my wife and she says yeah that looks lovely let's head down there and so we did and mm -hmm. we had a great time everything was going perfectly and every day, sunshine and turquoise seas. Uh, it was just close to paradise. And, but on uh, Boxing Day, I guess we say in England, right? Um, mm. You know, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, I was in my bungalow with my, my wife and just staring up at the uh, ceiling and the fan was just spinning around. And suddenly it, it, the fan turned off. And you just, you know, that kind of sound. And I thought, oh, okay, well, a blackout, no big deal. And it happens. 
mm-hmm. it came back on. I thought, okay, great. And then it went off again. But this time it stayed off. And not only did it stay off, but I mean, everything got really, really quiet. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, there was nothing. I mean, no insects, no animals, nothing. It was just an eerie silence. But I didn't think much of it. I just thought, wow, that's weird. Hmm. And next thing I heard was a scream. And I, I, in the distance, I really wasn't sure what it was. I just heard somebody saying something. And so I, I, I looked out and I saw a man running across the swimming pool, which was just about 50 meters in front of my cabin. And next thing I, I saw behind him was this wave just, you know, carry him off. And I thought, whoa, check that out. I mean, that's pretty much what I said. And I said, hey, Choco, that's my watch name. Take a look at this. And we just stood there in amazement watching this wave. Oh, okay. And this water just kept coming. But we were off the ground about six feet. So I thought, hey, nothing to worry about. But the water just kept coming. I thought, well, that's a lot of water. And then our balcony disappeared under the water. And it wasn't this crystal clear water that I talked about a few minutes ago, but mm. it was it was like murky, brown, silty. I, I can't even, it just, just looked yucky, I guess you could say. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, okay, just don't come in the cabin. Don't come in the cabin. Uh, but uh, it did come in the cabin. I'm like, okay, now we have to start thinking about maybe getting out of here. And so I thought, mm. what's the best way to do it? And I thought, oh. Maybe the bathroom is the best way because from there we can get out and climb up the mountainside. That's like the cliff side, I guess. And um, I started to head there just to check how big the window was, but I didn't make it like two feet because the the room started shaking. I mean, uncontrollably. I mean, I could barely stand. I mean, I was doing everything I could just to keep my balance. I couldn't move forward or backwards. I was just I mean, it was it was scary. I was like, oh, oh my god! I mean, what's what's going on? And then then it took it to the next level is when the sound and that's the, the metal contorting on the power of the the incredible pressure, and mm-hmm. it was terrifying. I mean, that's there's no other better word for it. Um, you know, just the the high pitch, you know, bending of metal that you hear in movies when things are breaking. You know, you know that. I, it was ear piercing and I was like, Oh my God, you know, this is it. And I, I mean, there's nothing I could do. And next thing I know, water's coming, you know, right at my, it was, it was at my knee. And the next thing I knew it was over my head and I, our bungalow had collapsed into the water. And I was like, okay, uh, Adrian, um, you've got 30 seconds of air because I, I didn't take a breath. I've, you've got 30 seconds of air. If you don't find air, you are dead. There's, mm. there's no end. There's no way, no ifs, ands, and buts about it. That is it. You have to find air. Find air. That's your only goal. That's step one. Step two, you get Kyoko out. You get, get your wife out. You've got to do it. You're, that's your job as a husband. And I said my goodbyes to my parents. And I, I, I said hello to my maker under the water, just saying, if this was it, this is my time. That's the way it's got to be. But uh, lo and behold, uh, I, I happened to find air, and I'm, I'm just so grateful that the bungalow or the cabin I was in was the ceiling was so high. <laughs> I'm so because mm-hmm. I could touch the ceiling when I came up. Uh, so mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, from the um, the beach level to the top of my cabin must have been six, about 21 feet, and I could touch it at the end. So the water level had gone up about 15 feet about mm. and 
you know, I'm lucky I just had that extra few feet in between that, that mm. saved us. Um, mm. And we got out just in time before the second wave hit. And um, we spent all day at the emergency center just taking care of people. I mean, we, we basically escaped unscathed. My wife had two scratches on her legs and back. I just had a, a tiny scratch on my foot. I mean, incredible considering my bungalow in my hotel was the worst. I mean, it, there was no bungalow left after we came back. I mean, it was ripped apart in, you mm. know, there was just, I, I guess you could say one third of the cabin was left over. Roof was ripped off. Just the uh, closet area had, had remained. I mean, it was just incredible what water can do. And, you know, there's no escape from it. Uh, so mm. from that moment forward, I've just said, you know, Adrian, you, you've been given a chance at life and you've got to make something of yourself. And although you're helping these people learn English, which is a good thing, you've got to do more. You've been given this great chance and maybe you're, you've got to do something with it. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go for it. And so I've been doing uh, pretty much personal development productivity ever since. In what ways did you think your attitude changed towards life, towards business, to you know, just generally? <laughs> well, first and foremost is that, uh, you know, nothing really phases me. I mean, you know, I've lost a fortune. Uh, I've lost friends. Um, and I just go, hey, you know, um, that, that's life. Uh, just you've got to pick yourself up and move on. Um, in business, you're going to be shouted at. You're going to have people ignore you. You're going to run into trouble and make mistakes. But none of it really matters because, you know, it, every day is a gift. And, and what's that? When that happened, because I know you, you mentioned that you've been bankrupt, bankrupt a couple of, or almost bankrupt a couple of times. Was that before or afterwards? Uh, let me see. Uh, once before and twice afterwards. <laughs> So, me, huh? <laughs> so I'm well I mean obviously I've got loads of questions about that you know about those three episodes but then also tying that into how your attitude changed so I suppose the incident that happened the bankruptcy or the almost bankruptcy that happened before the tsunami you mm -hmm. must have had a very different reaction after you were much calmer after the tsunami and having a different attitude towards life no oh, absolutely yeah I mean before the tsunami you know you 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 see life as everything happening to you and that you mm. think, oh, oh no, oh, woe is me. You know, I lost all mm. this money and I'm in so much trouble and, you know, what can I do? But after the tsunami, it's like, hey, I'm still alive. That's mm. pretty much it. That, that's it. That's, that's that one sentence. I'm still alive. Therefore, I can make it back. I can come back from this. I, I have life and I have my health. As long as you have those two mm. things, you can come back from pretty much anything. And, and you know, you hear this, I mean, it's it's a cliche, but often cliches are, the, you know, there's a good reason why mm -hmm. things are cliches, but you learn most from your failures. So, you know, having those different, almost going bankruptcies, you, I'm presuming you learn a lot from all of those incidents. Absolutely. I think the biggest lesson I learned from pretty much all of them is be careful who you trust. I'm mm -hmm. a very trusting person uh, by nature. I want to see the good in people. And... What I found is that people, even with the best intentions, they're not trying to hurt you, but they can ruin you. They make mm. bad decisions. I mean, I've made bad decisions, but I think my mm. biggest mistakes were probably trusting the wrong people and not seeing soon enough to get out. And I let them pull me down. 
and I'm still fighting my way back even now. I mean, although I've completely changed my life, I'm still trying to pay off things that I, uh, I people I owe and things like that um, mm-hmm. because it, I, I made some mistakes and I cost people their money. And so I have to find ways to pay them back. But would you say you're, um, I mean, this may sound crazy. Are you in a better place now? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, as you said, you learn from your failures. I mean, I mm. wouldn't change it for anything because I think those failures push me even more. And I, mm. When you come, when you get to rock bottom, there's nowhere else to go but up. And you, you realize it's not going to defeat you. Mm. So the tsunami gave me the belief that every day is a gift. So whether I'm in pain or whether I'm uh, struggling for money, hey, I, I, can, I can come back from that. But mm. um, with business failures, you, you just try to learn what not to do for next time. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And, and you want to improve upon it each time. And I think now I finally found my real calling and I'm really getting some traction. So, yeah, I wouldn't change it for anything. But I, but I wouldn't want people to go through what I did because they might not mm. be as lucky. It was pure mm. luck. You know, 200,000 plus people lost their lives that day. I was one of the ones who escaped unscathed, and I don't know why or how still to this day. Mm. Just pure luck. Mm. Wow. Um, well, let's just go back. I mean, before you were talking about the um, the productivity and the, the mm-hmm. time issues that people mm-hmm. were having and so on. And one of the things that I was thinking when you were, when you were talking about that is, why do you think time time management is such a problem for so many people? Honestly, I think the answer is quite simple to that one. And that is that I think people overlook it. I think people don't really understand how valuable time is and how valuable their time is. But they just mm. think that, hey, I have, I have, don't worry, I can get to it tomorrow. I can put it off. Don't, don't worry, I'm still young. I'm only 30 or I'm only 40. And next thing they know, they're 60. We all have that thing. We say, I will write the book when. I, I love that. You know, I'm going to do it when. No, you either do it or you don't do it. And you should start today. Even if it's just writing one sentence in your book, just try. Why put it off? And I think people are master procrastinators without even noticing it. Mm. And they're not doing it to self-sabotage themselves. It's just they. I think people think that they have more time than they do. And they don't feel the, the intensity or the, the need to get started. And they think, I'll get to it later. Mm. And I think that's the big mistake that most people have when it comes to time management, the mindset anyway. And, and so how is it that you help people with productivity? In what way do you help them? Well, you know, I've, I've gone back and forth over the years. And these days, I mean, I think I start off with the most basic. I, I think that's the best way to do it. I, I believe in the snowball effect today in the sense that you, you've got to get momentum and you've got to get it mm. fast. The last thing you want to do is have people move slowly because it, it's about time management. So you want to, you know, get out of the gate fast and really implement some things quickly that will have an impact in their lives almost instantly today, tomorrow, this week. You don't want it, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks, two months in the future. That's too far. You want to show mm-hmm. them, hey, just make this change and there'll be an impact. And they go, hey, mm-hmm. that works. And that's what we need mm-hmm. to get. We need to get as many of those going as quickly as possible. And 
but for each person it's different. So what I really do is I first take a look at their present situation. I, I just kind of go in and do like a time analysis. I feel like I'm a detective, you know, you know, put on my Sherlock hat and I, I go to town. And I just kind of get my magnifying glass out and then look at each aspect of their life. I look at their health. I look at their daily habits. I look at their their planning. I look at their uh, their vices, uh, their addictions. Uh, I'm not talking about drugs, hopefully, but, you know, their video game addiction or TV addiction or, I don't know, Trumpism, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, whatever things are holding them back, and I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I basically want to do what the British cycling team did in 2004, when I forget what his name is, but uh, a new head of the uh, cycling committee was assigned. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I know who you Dave, mean. Yeah, I can't. Dave. Yeah. Uh, ah, I, can't I forgot. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, he just he they stripped everything down to its their smallest parts and, and basically implemented small, tiny changes in everything. And across mm. the board, it doesn't seem like much, but when you put them back together, it, it has an incredible impact. It's the law, mm. it's kind of compounding effect, but doing it in little tiny areas that seem almost insignificant. I mean, I when I read the story, I had to tell my son because it was so funny that they hired a surgeon to come in and teach the cycling team how to wash their hands to make to to have the best chance of not catching a cold you know i mean who who comes up with that concept i mean we wash our hands day in and day out but it's these little things that we miss that really that take us off track and um i have a something that i have today it's called the productivity formula and, and the productivity formula is basically a, a bunch of different areas and you you give yourself a score in each of them and in the end, you put it back together and you'll get your productivity score. And then you'll see how you compare a high super performer, average performer, sub sub average performer. Uh, and, and then you can really go, whoa, uh, I thought I was better than that. I mean, even myself, when I looked at when I created and I, I did my own score, I was like, ooh, I mean, as a productivity estimate, maybe I've got to do some more work on it myself. Mm. I think we can all go to uh, do some more work on those things. So when people approach you for help with productivity, what mostly is it that they're looking for? What, what do they want? Do they just want to be less procrastinating and just more, more productive? I think that a lot of people are doing things right, actually. Mm-hmm. I think they're doing more right than they realize. No matter how overwhelmed mm-hmm. they are, they're actually doing a lot right. The problem is they're, they're doing a lot wrong as well. And that, that wrong part is really holding them back. And if they could just get rid of those wrong things, it would unleash a lot of power. Because those wrong things, those wrong habits, those vices, they act as like chains that hold us down. So even when we're doing things right, we don't, we're not getting the maximum impact. So you can be working eight hours and you're getting stuff done. But really, if you'd gotten rid of those bad habits, you'd be doing double or triple the amount of work. But it's those little things that hold us back. I mean, the distractions and our addictions to social media, that's a common one these days. Uh, being Trying to do too much. I said this to a client this morning. is You've got to slow down to speed up. And they said, what, what do you mean you have to slow down to speed up? I said, you're trying to do too much. And you think we've been programmed today thanks to computers and all this things that we have to do and to manage that we have to do more and more and more, but, but the problem is we're not doing any of them really well. And mm-hmm. so by slowing down and just tackling little pieces, 
you'll really get a, a lot more oomph behind it. Mm. And and so then that that and it's hard because by slowing down you have to say no to some things because you you think oh I've got to do this and this no those things won't matter forget those things just let them go slow down take a breath go for a walk and I don't have time to go for a walk I don't have time to do that no you do you do have time for that and mm. and those people think more is is more but it's wrong it's actually ironic that by doing less you can actually achieve more. Mm. So what would you say, I mean, obviously, you know, this program is called Exceeding Expectations. So how mm-hmm. are you able to exceed expectations of the people you're working with? Well, I, I always try to go above and beyond. I mean, that's plain and simple. Uh, I believe in the concept of um, un, under-promise and over, uh, over-deliver. I think it's just mm-hmm. something that everybody in every industry should be doing. Uh, you want to give your customers something above and beyond what they pay for because that will keep them coming back. If you give them what they want, they'll be happy, but mm-hmm. it won't, they, they will be swayed by other competitors. You want to be able to show them, hey, I'm going to go beyond what I said I would do, and I'm going to dazzle you with whatever. And so a few things I do, I try to make sure gifts are very memorable. I, I have a thing where I have a deal with a cake shop here in Osaka now that they will actually write the name of the, the person on the eclair that I give it that I give them. Uh, so it's just it's a personalized eclair. I mean, who heck who the heck has personalized eclairs? And I mean, it's not like I made it. It's just the shop did that for me, and they and they you know make it look all nice. And it's just and it's my favorite eclair. So it's just what I think is fabulous. It's not about the price. It's about the impact that it has. Like wow, first of all, the eclair is delicious. So they all like that. But then it's like personalized, and it's like. Ooh, that's just a nice little touch. Uh, yeah. when, and I'm always taking notes on people's interests because I think that will let you see what things you can get them that will really have an impact. You don't want to get them something luxurious. Anybody can get something, a, a client, something really nice. And there's nothing wrong with that. But mm-hmm. getting something meaningful, something memorable, that's different. And if you think back in our own lives, what were the most memorable gifts we got? It's not the most expensive gift, although it, you know, maybe a Ferrari might might count, but oftentimes mm-hmm. it's not because it. Yes, short term maybe that, that the new car it was so memorable, whatever. But oftentimes it's maybe the card that your son wrote for you when you mm-hmm. were eighteen, and and he didn't have any money to buy anything for you for Christmas, but he just wrote an, a card and said thank you, and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you bring a tear to their eye. And it's not, it's not the cost. It's the, the intention behind the gift. I think everybody appreciates that. And when they have those things in their house that really mean something to them, when they look at them, they think, oh, Adrian, or oh, Tony, or oh, Peter. Mm. They go, mm. you know, it, it's, it, it's got some meaning behind it. And that's what I think you've got to do when you give gifts. And I, I, got, I picked that up from Steve Sims' fabulous book, Blue Fishing. I'd been doing it myself to a certain extent, but after I, I read Blue Fishing, I, I went even further and started, you know, um, what do you call it, engraving things and things like that. So I got a, a client who smokes, which I'm not a fan of, but I got them an engraved lighter you know, with mm-hmm. their name and, and, and the date um, that celebrates something for them. And again, that's powerful. And they'll mm-hmm. treasure that as long as they have it. And if they lose it, they'll feel bad about it. 
mm-hmm. you know, and that's what you want to do. That's one thing I do. So gift gift giving in in and in, in unique ways is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And on mm-hmm. top of that, I also do magic uh, for clients because mm-hmm. I like magic, and I think most people have only seen magic on TV or at a show. Most people have never seen it right in front of them, and I love to be able to give people that you know, amazing experience. And I can also mm, show them, well, yes, I'm a productivity expert, but I can amaze you with this as well. And most people are, sometimes even people say, you know, are you a magician? (laughs) Because I I did study quite hard and I was getting quite good. I'm better than some street magicians and I have a ton of material. I, I could, I suppose, if I worked hard at it, become a magician, but I don't want to. I want to be a productivity expert who entertains people after the mm-hmm. sessions, after the meetings, after the lectures, with a little entertainment. Hmm. And so what when you, you're talking about the magic, so you're doing this just what, like when you're socializing afterwards in, in a bow after the deal is finished or I mean how how does that well do it, that? it depends. Um, sometimes I actually try and bring it in to my lectures uh, to start off. Uh, if it makes a point, if it's connected to productivity or it's connected to what I'm talking about, if I can, mm. can link it, then I can use it. If I can't, I just use it afterwards. Uh, I have my, my, my name, my uh, business cards are actually playing cards. So mm. I went online and I found that you could get customized uh, playing cards that, uh, you know, you can put anything on it. So I basically put my logo, my telephone number and my website and it, and I mean, first of all, when you take out those cards, I mean, you say you're going to do a magic trick. They don't notice that it's your business card at first. So they're just going along. They just think, oh, those are unusual cards. I've never seen that before. But, you know, there's all sorts of cards. We've seen different backs uh, when we've been traveling around the world. But when I finish the trick and I say, okay, well, and you can keep the card because that's my um, business card. And they go, oh, whoa, look at that. And they go, wow, that's pretty, that's, that's different. And I do think if you can give people a unique business card, I've, I've seen like poker chips is another one that I thought was a very clever idea. Um, mm. uh, different shapes, triangle, origami type. I mean, there's many ways to make your uh, business card more memorable, especially if you mm. can link it to you or your business. It, it's mm. really powerful. Mm. Something else you you mentioned last time, you were talking about something called the five-minute habits. Five-minute habits. (laughs) Um, Five-minute habits. Well, uh, basically, um, we all have things in our lives uh, that are basically five minutes or less. Mm -hmm. And they are often things that we overlook. Uh, a good one mm-hmm. that I use is uh, brushing my teeth. It's a mm-hmm. five, five or five minutes or less habit for most people. Most people a minute, <laughs> but I just include it in that five minute group. Mm-hmm. And essentially, those are the things that we overlook uh, because mm-hmm. they become automatic. They are things that we don't really pay much attention to because we don't think they're having much effect on our lives. They're only five minutes or less. How how much damage can that be doing to us? But what I found is that those five-minute habits are often what make the difference uh, between success and failure. And what you want to be able to do is you want to create more habits that are helping you than hurting you. 
it's like every time you have a habit, it's either going to push you up a step on a, on a ladder, or I guess uh, up a mountain. Let's put it, let's use a mountain, or it's going to take you one step down. And the problem is, is that when at the end of that day, that habit has either pulled you up one or minus one, but the gap now is two. It's not one mm. because mm. you're not going back to where you were. You either went negative. There's no neutral in life. It was either positive mm. for you or negative for you. It wasn't. There was no such thing as neutral. You either brush your teeth well and it helped protect your teeth or it didn't. And now you're actually hurting your teeth. So you want to be able to see over time that quite quickly there's a huge disparity between doing things well and doing things badly. And those five-minute habits are everywhere in our life. They're the uh, checking social media that um, doesn't usually start, doesn't end up being five minutes. It ends up being much longer than five minutes. But we often mm. think that it's just taking us five minutes of our time. Yeah. Um, there are things such as exercise, which you know, get started with five minutes. Don't try to do 25 minutes or 30 minutes. Most people will give up that pretty dang quick. But what you mm. can do is 10 push-ups. You can do 20 jumping jacks in less than five minutes. These things will have a positive effect on you slowly. And everybody has five minutes. Everybody. Hmm. There's no excuse. No one can say to me, I don't have five minutes. Nobody. Hmm. You know, while you're watching TV, you come home, you've had, you're having your dinner. Let's say your wife's gone to bed, you come home late. You're eating your dinner. While you're eating your dinner, that's five minutes right there. You could be reading a book while you're eating dinner. There's five minutes right there. You don't. It doesn't have to be an isolated thing. It could be done while you're watching TV. You can be doing jumping jacks while you're watching TV. Five minutes. Five minutes. And five minutes is where it all starts. Hmm. It's not the 20 minutes or the 30-minute workout that really is the success story, really. It's the establishment hmm. of those five-minute habits done well. And then you can slowly expand it soon. Those five-minute, you know, exercise routine that you have can easily be changed to ten minutes. Hmm. You see, people think, well, only five minutes. That's what they. Well, only five minutes. Why would I do it? It's not going to have any impact. They overlook it. Instead, you're looking. You're you're not seeing the big picture. You start with five. You don't end with five. Hmm. You're going to expand upon it slowly over time, and those small little things that you do can pay off big time in the future and you, you mentioned something before i can't remember what context you said this in but something about how breathing ex exercises can help with productivity oh absolutely sure yeah uh, i mean we all know that yoga is basically a lot of breathing and i didn't realize how important it is but breathing is it's just something we do it's automatic mm. and our body's programmed to do it it's not programmed to do it well it's programmed to do it as it needs Mm -hmm. But you can kind of, it's a life hack in the sense that you can start controlling your breathing to slow it down or increase it based on what you want to accomplish. If you want to give yourself a boost of energy, you can increase your breathing. It's, they're called breath scales. You can take a look at them. Basically, you build up your breathing speed, the inhalation and then the exhalation, and quite intensely, and, and you're basically pulling a oxygen into your lung rapidly and releasing it quickly. And it's intense. It's like a boost of power. But at the same time, you can just slow down using apps, uh, yoga apps, breathing apps that will just set you in a, a very 
relaxed mode. And most of the time, you know, when we sit in front of our computer, we're just focusing on the computer. We're focusing on what we do. We're not, we're forgetting about our breathing and how much it affects us. But mm -hmm. if we just want to create a boost of energy, then we, we can do that. But if we want to just mm -hmm. relax and slow down then you can breathe. Mm -hmm. And there's something about breathing as humans is if you breathe a little faster, sometimes other people will breathe a little faster. Sometimes you can kind of connect with them. If you, if you adopt their breathing style, then you know how they're feeling and they will feel like a connection to you. It's really bizarre. But yeah, I mean, breathing was a weird one for me. I have to say, when I first heard it, I thought, yeah, that's a load of hooky. Uh, um, I thought, yeah, whatever. But when I tried it, I thought, wow, it really does work. And so I recommend your listeners just give it a shot. I mean, it's a five-minute habit, not even five minutes, less than a minute maybe. And you'll be surprised the uh, impact you can have. Fantastic. Well, Adrian, it's been a real pleasure and hopefully the tech has worked this time. And uh, this episode will be online for everyone to hear in the very near future. Not quite sure what happened at the end there, but the audio cut off just in the last few seconds. So we didn't actually hear Adrian say goodbye. Um, he didn't have, didn't have a, lot, a lot of luck with Adrian and technology, but we got 99.9% .9 of the episode in. Next week's show, episode 39, is with a lady called Jennifer Royal. She's, her background is in magic. She lives down in Germany, in, in Munich. And she kind of tries to make the impossible possible. She coaches people how they can create magic in life and business by breaking through their mental limitations. So that's next week, Jennifer Royal. Hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Hope you have a fantastic week.